But the one thing we probably could tackle is that connection. So how would we create more connections for old people? And there was this light bulb moment of, well, there's a bunch of young people that are probably also lonely and want to hang out with somebody. They probably would love to talk to an old person, but just need the help and understanding of how do you actually do that. And I think, and this is kind of really relevant to DSR, how do you rebrand volunteering with an old person? Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to DSR Branding Presents. Join me as I interview brilliant business leaders on branding, marketing, design, and good business principles. These are people who think differently and have commercialized their creativity to do something remarkable. This episode is on social impact with Lee Crockford and William Smith Stubbs. Lee and Will are the co-founders of Spur, a strategy, design, and venture studio focused on positively affecting human actions and measuring the outcome. Some of Spur's projects have spanned sustainability, human rights, mental health, and more, with achievements including the world's first global smartphone survey for mental health and a record-breaking anti-loneliness volunteering program. In this episode, we discuss their first project, Soften the F Up, a mental health and suicide prevention project that looked to reshape the language around men's mental health. They take me through Old Mate, a national campaign developed to reduce the social isolation of the elderly. We discuss rebranding foster care and their methodology for how to drive action in social movements. I gained heaps of valuable takeaways from this chat, but one thing that stood out was the importance of language when trying to drive action, which is relevant for all marketers, designers, and business people. I had a great time chatting with Will and Lee, Not only are they genuinely great blokes who are brilliant at what they do, they're also making the world a better place. Just a warning, this episode features some colourful language. So Will, Lee, thanks so much for coming on the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having us, Dan. Yeah, no, cool. So we always kick things off the same way with a simple icebreaker. So... Lee, do you want to kick off with what's your favorite brand and why? And then we'll get Will's. Ooh, um, I think for me, and this isn't necessarily a reflection of the actual products or what it is that they do, uh, but I think for me, ASAP uh, really has to be up there. Mm. I think I've always been a, a really big fan of simplicity, of minimalism. And I think one of the things that ASAP does really well is what I'd probably call um, you know, bespoke minimalism, this idea that you can walk into any you know, ASAP store around Australia. They are all individually designed, uh, you know, specific to their context and their environment. So they are all different, yet there's this um, you know, consistency between them. So for me, that ability um, to be able to um, be nuanced and interesting and different, yet still simple and uh, minimalistic, I think really uh, resonates with me. Because um, I think at Spur, we've always had a, a bit of a saying, and one of our values actually, of it stands, it works, it's beautiful. And so everything that we do, we try mm. and make sure uh, abides by that. And I think ASAP does a really uh, terrific job of abiding by those sorts of values. That's cool. I, I read that the, uh, the founder of Aesop has a rule that everyone has to write in black pen, black ink pen uh, throughout oh. the business. Yeah, oh. which is interesting. It's, nice, it's a nice rule. <laughs> hmm. um, and Will, what about you? Uh, that was a really good one. So now I feel self-conscious um, <laughs> about mine because um, uh, they are a beautiful brand, Aesop. Um, you know, the thing that, that jumps to mind 
because I want to say Four Pillars Gin, which is delicious, and I love their brand, um, but just be a little bit different. Uh, spaceship superannuation, and I will preface this with saying it's not, I think, that innovative or um, incredible in, in some ways, but I think what it did really, really well was it made something that most people find very dry, very boring. You don't like thinking about superannuation, um, if it even comes to mind, and made it something that was very modern, very lively, very interesting um, and fun. And I think for when it launched, um, which is a, a number of years ago now, I think it became a bit of a tastemaker. Um, the, the brand itself, I think, set off not just a lot of purple that I've seen um, or that shade since, but it had this um, quality that I wouldn't be surprised if it contributed to a lot of the branding you've seen lately of um, uh, illustrations that are very minimal, very clean, and also very modern. So I think what they did to take something incredibly boring, well, that probably isn't boring, but is seen as boring, which is superannuation, and make it something that you actually want to look at and you actually want to interact with. And for us, I suppose that's kind of core to it, right? Like how do you use a brand to get people to do something different? And in this case, it was get people to actually look at and check the superannuation account. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. It, it sort of sparks um, to mind what Xero did for accounting so- software. Yeah, mm. yeah. In terms of mm-hmm. turned turn lots of business owners into yeah, uh, aspiring bookkeepers and accountants. <laughs> Um, mm. so guys, thanks for, if that's a good thing, when else we want to actually encourage that, but yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so a bit of background, how did you guys meet? Oh, it was nearly a decade know. ago now. Yeah. Um, so many, 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 many moons ago, um, I had met a gentleman by the name of Eon Chan, who was very much involved in, in the social impact space. And, um, Eon had lost a friend of his to suicide. And I think for Eon, there was always that question of at what point did his friend reach a point in his life where he thought it was a better option for him to take his own life than it was to reach out to friends and and family um, around him. And so um, Eon had this idea uh, for a campaign uh, which was really aimed at around changing some of the conversation uh, in the mental health space. Uh, And I apologise for the language. I don't know what this podcast is rated. No, it's okay. Uh, But the project was called um, Soften the Fuck Up. And it was really uh, aimed at how is it that we might talk about mental well-being with young men in a way that was vastly different to anything that had been done before in the mental health space in Australia. Um, and as part of uh, that initial campaign, um, Will was part of it as actually one of the, uh, oh, what were you? You're the poster boy, I guess, Will, of, of the campaign. I mean, uh, trying to be, I suppose. <laughs> um, and it, I mean, look at it now and like the videos are still around and it looks so young and greasy. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really embarrassing. But I remember um, a friend of a friend knew Ehon and this mutual friend had heard about my story of when I was, I was about 12 years old, very sick, um, very isolated, became suicidal. And so at, at 12, almost took my life. Didn't really think much of it after I recovered from that. It was just something that happened to me. Um, and then he had heard about Ehon's idea, got me in touch. And so I got roped into the project. And next thing I knew, I was, yeah, kind of the poster boy of that initial campaign. But I remember um, the day we rocked up to film that video and this guy walked out, um, his big blue eyes and his big grin. Uh, and that was Lee. And, and 10 years later, um, he still hasn't gotten rid of me. So 
<laughs> Such is history. And, and yeah, it was an interesting campaign because um, I think, you know, we spent a lot of time uh, back then, you know, granted the mental health space is so vastly different now to what it was uh, a decade ago, I think. And so before we launched um, Soften the Fuck Up, we took a really long time to look at what was actually happening in the mental health space in Australia. And what we, we, we found um, from our, well, I don't know if you can really call it research, I guess more of our scan at the time, was that so much of the language was really clinical. Um, a lot of it was mm. really what we believed to be disempowering language. It was all very much framed around this idea of you're in a hole and you need other people to help you get out. Um, if it was uh, gender-specific, often it would be more female um, type as opposed to, to men. And we looked at that as young guys and went, well, does any of this appeal to you? And we went, well, no. And so, yeah, that was really the inspiration behind mm. um, Soften the Fuck Up to try and actually shift some of that language, some of that conversation. I know we'll probably get into the, the details of all this sort of stuff later on in, in the chat, um, but really about this idea of just because there are mental health services available, just because you create something doesn't mean that people are going to want to use it, doesn't mean people are going to want to engage with it. And so I think that's what set Will and I off really, really early on in our, um, on our journey our spur journey uh, with this mindset of you can't just build things. You actually have to make sure that what you're building, it's an easier option to engage with that thing than to not engage with it. Yeah, that's cool. And, and before we go into sort of the, the start of spur, can I just get a bit of background on each of you? I mean, Will, what, what, what did you do sort of leading up into this, you know, uni-wise or, or work-wise? Oh, man. That's so long ago now. I don't even know. A lot of Xbox. Um, I don't know. I went to uni actually for um, a few years doing kind of just bumming around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. It was kind of a rule in my family. You had to go to university. Um, and so I was kind of forced to go. I did a bit of psychology, a bit of literature, a bit of anthropology and um, hated it. Uh, and then um, got kicked out because I stopped going to classes. And back then, you had to have a, a, like a, a quota of attendance. Um, ironically, 10 years later, um, they asked Lee and I at that university to come back and speak. <laughs> and I mentioned, you kicked me out. And that caused a bit of, of um, ruffled feathers. Um, so I just honestly, and, and I would say, you know, I don't want to, um, dramatize that um, coming together of Lee and I and what Spur has now become, but I have no idea what I'd be doing otherwise. And it took mm. us years to get to a point where we could do this full time and, and figure out what this business is, what the nonprofit is, and, and how do we actually do this. But um, I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, I would say, I, you know, to answer your actual question, uh, a bit of this, a bit of that, no real idea until I found this thing I want to do, which is spur. Yeah, that's awesome. And Lee? Uh, depends how far back you want to go. <laughs> I can go back to my, my uh, when I used to be a children's entertainer and a clown once upon a time. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but no, my, my, my core background uh, was in music, was in composition. Um, I studied at the Conservatorium of, of Music and then after I graduated, went over to London um, for a few years to, you know, make it as a composer, uh, quote unquote, which is actually a much, <laughs> much harder thing to do than I think um, I, I ever thought. Um, but I ended up working for a, another organization over in the UK that was basically doing big opera projects with young kids. So I've very much fell into the music education space for many years, which it seems, you know, sometimes I, I look back over my career and go, God, there was so many kind of bits and bobs and really disjointed. But then I actually think the work I did 
over there was a really great primer for the work that we do in Spur now. Mm. Um, the large part of my job, we were basically going into uh, primary schools in the east end of London, uh, a lot of English as a second language, low socioeconomic areas, and trying to teach these kids opera. Um, and for a lot of these kids, some of the schools we're going into um, hadn't had a music teacher since the uh, mid-80s when Thatcher you know, changed a, a whole lot of school funding over there. And so, you know, this idea of us rocking in for a couple of days to teach kids, hey, you're going to be performing on a West End stage in two months' time. We need to teach you some opera. Um, mm. You kind of just can't do that in some ways because, you know, kids, they don't know what opera is. And so I think from a really kind of early stage in my career, there was this uh, really deep um, need to be able to enter other people's models of the world, find out what's important to them. And if you do want to move them to action to get them excited about something, um, you can't just go in there with what you want to do. You really have to understand them and tailor everything you do down to, you know, the nth degree around what is going to get a good response out of them. Yeah, that's cool. And like you said, like a, a really sort of interesting platform or, or introduction to, to, I guess, the early stages of, I guess, doing social impact or getting, you know, helping change behavior or influence behavior. Hmm, absolutely. Absolutely. So guys, uh, what is Spur? I had a meeting today and, and um, with a, a, an organization that's really keen to bring us on board and, and do some work. And he even remarks, the CEO, he's like, it's really hard to explain what you do. And I was like, yeah, it is a bit. Um, but the official uh, line of how we explain to people is, is that we're a strategy design and venture studio. And we're focused on positively affecting human actions as well as measuring the outcome of that, not just doing it for the sake of doing it. Um, and what that really means is we specialize in moving people to action. So we will go into a particular problem, um, figure out what are the mechanisms required, the paradigms that exist, the messages need to be sent and then figure out a strategy that will move those people into the desired action. And for us, that always has to be a positive social issue. So we would never work for, say, uh, an oil company that wants to drill for more oil. We might work for a company that wants to help people to lower their consumption of uh, fossil fuels. It's always for us about really three key pillars, which is creating a world that is fair, sustainable and well. What is, I think, particularly unique about us is, as we mentioned, Lee and I um, met and began our work tinkering in um, this campaign called Soften the Fuck Up and looking at mental health and suicide prevention. That was a, a brilliant testing ground for us. And over the years um, from that very beginning, we created an official DGI1 registered nonprofit, which originally was called Spare Projects. That nonprofit, um, again, taught us so much about how do you create change and how do you take messages that are already being sent out there that do it better or in a way that is more agreeable, you know, to Lee's example of, of getting kids to do opera, maybe you just need to rebrand what opera is to kids to get them to participate. For us, though, it, it got to a point where we realized that to do the work we really wanted to do, we needed to make money uh, because a lot of the projects that we wanted to do were very innovative. They were very um, untested. They were experimental and we felt they were needed. But when you go for grant funding in the social impact space, most often you need to prove that it's going to work or that somebody else has done it, which I always find is such a ridiculous um, paradox. <laughs> and so for us, we um, realized, okay, we're not, we'll just do it ourselves. And so we created a second company, um, which is called Spur, make it simple. And Spur is that commercial side where we work with clients um, on projects ranging from 
how do you create a better fundraising strategy um, for your nonprofit or for um, a large professional firm that wants to create a, a holistic well-being strategy for their employees? How do you do that? How do you make them happier because they come to work like legitimately? That commercial side is owned uh, in part by the nonprofit, so the two work in tandem, and it's a very rare instance, I think, of you know most companies uh, become successful through their commercial ventures. And they say, hey, we should give back. Let's create a foundation off the back of it. Whereas we're kind of the reverse. We are a charity that realized we could do things in the commercial space that would help also continue our mission. And so we create a commercial thing off the back of the nonprofit. Um, so yeah, a very, very unique uh, journey to where we are now, but it allows us to work on a range of different things around social impact and changing people's behavior. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. The, the other thing I'd add to that too is uh, one of our other kind of big pillars is really about that impact measurement side of things. Um, mm. You know, it's all well and good to move people to action, but one of the things we see a lot in the social impact space, regardless of whether that's a not-for-profit or government or businesses, when they are trying to create good, often there's so much focus on inputs and outputs. Hey, we had so many clicks yeah. and we had so many likes. Mm. Um, and, you know, one of the, the examples we often use is um, if you think about, you know, say building water wells in remote communities, just because you've built a thousand wells doesn't mean that there's been any social impact or any good social good that has mm. come of that. What's not, what's more important than the number of wells is how is that actually demonstrably improving people's lives, you know, in terms of uh, reducing waterborne disease, in terms of uh, improving efficiency because people aren't having to travel so mm. far, all those sorts of things. And I think that's something that uh, if I can go out on a bit of a limb, I think, you know, the social impact space in general, that's a, an area that a lot of people are trying to work really hard on, but I think it's an area that often still falls short. Um, and I say that, you know, through yeah. the lens that it's something that I don't think that we did well um, when we first started. <laughs> um, when, when we first did Soften the Fuck Up, I remember very, very clearly about 12 months after we launched, we were sitting there patting ourselves on the back. We'd won, you know, um, these mental health awards and design awards and all these accolades and all these clicks and all these likes. Mm. But we sat down and went, well, the whole reason why we were doing this thing, and again, we were doing this as volunteers, so we weren't getting paid. So the reason why we were doing this thing was to actually help try and save lives and to help move men to take positive action. And we asked ourselves, well, what evidence do we have that any of Soften the Fuck Up did, did that in any way, shape, or form? And we have a metric of one. Um, you know, it's a very good metric. There's a comment on one of our videos on YouTube that says this video saved my life six months ago. Uh, my circumstances haven't really changed, but my outlook has. And for that, I thank you. Wow. And that, you know, that still gives me goosebumps to this day, yeah. but it is a metric of one. And so I think very, very early on that set us down this path of if we're going to donate our time and our resources and go out of our way to create you know, something in the mental health space, we need to be able to make sure that impact metrics that we can measure, are we improving yeah. people's lives, is baked into every single one of our projects. And I think that's probably uh, in addition to the behavior change focus that we have, it's that impact measurement that I think we yeah. do exceptionally well. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think I, I, really, I really admire that. And moving away from like what you said, those sort of vanity metrics of, you know, likes, shares, impressions that, you know, especially us in marketing, love to uh, love to pat ourselves on the back with, but really boiling, you know, does, when it boils down, like what is the true effect and what is the true impact? I think that's, um, that's remarkable that you guys are sort of, you know, 
I guess focusing on that space and really trying to um to back it up with uh, evidence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we should say there's there's no nothing wrong with likes and impressions and tracking the reach of a campaign, right? Like it's no. you you got to do that, particularly if you're spending money on on it. But you know, to Lee's point, if if you're seeing like there's a, there's a million likes on a post about uh, getting your um, you're getting a COVID test, but then you've seen that the number of COVID tests that have happened since you, you launched that is nowhere near what it should be. Well, then is that worth it? Is it actually achieving the goal that you're, you're trying to achieve? I think if you're selling a product, it's, it's probably less important. Um, but when you, when you are saying to the world, you're doing good, we just believe you should actually be measuring that. Otherwise, you're just doing stuff and hoping good comes of it. So yeah, nothing wrong we, with likes and impressions. Those are fine. <laughs> we have a saying at Spur that uh, creating awareness is for those that can't get people to take action. <laughs> and I think it's 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 a little bit like in some ways preheating. It's a bit the cheeky. Oven. I like it. You know, you you absolutely do need to preheat the oven. There's nothing wrong with that. It is needed. But at the end of the day, if you go well, we preheated the oven. Our job here is done. <laughs> then ultimately, you know, the cake doesn't get cooked and so for us that's why we kind of talk about actually moving people to action that it's not a slight against awareness because that's an important stepping stone on the way mm. but if what you're doing and what you're investing time and money and resources into is purely just to preheat the oven without actually baking the cake then uh, at least you know from will and i's perspective um that's you selling yourself a little bit short yeah where did that one come from i haven't heard that analogy yet uh well as like in lock been baking today. Lee's gone. Lee's gone through the uh, baking stage of uh, of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for listeners, Lee is based in Melbourne, so he um, and we are at the time of Melbourne's. Uh, I think we're three weeks into their six week COVID lockdown. Mm. So um, yeah, Lee is fun times. <laughs> graciousness with his Thoughts presence. Thoughts and prayers, Lee. Um, do you want to dive into the Soften the Fuck Up campaign and, and take us through a bit more of that? Or is there another project that you would like to, to take us through as a recent example of Spur Projects? I would say probably Old Mate is, is probably yeah, a good one gonna, to, yeah. to, to jump into. Um, we'll, I'll, yeah. Feel free to kick that off if you want. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, where do we begin? So, so I think historically the way that we, we worked in the non-profit side was that we realized that there was um, particular areas we, we wanted to try and tackle all that, you know, one campaign, say soften the fuck up, young men, that's very specific for that age group. So 14, maybe up to 44, um, which is the highest rate of suicide um, for, uh, sorry, the, if you're age 14 to 41 in Australia, the number one way that you will die is suicide. But we know that that campaign isn't going to cut it for different age groups and demographics. And I remember Lee, um, you came to me at one point years ago and you were talking about um, that if you remove the, the natural causes of death in men um, after 80, suicide actually spikes and it's the highest uh, demographic for suicide of all. Um, and so we started looking at, well, what, why is that? Like what, what prompts this? And for men, um, over the age of 80 or, or, or close to there, there's a bunch of reasons as to why that might happen, why you get to the point of being suicidal, going down that sliding slope. So you, you've lost uh, position in society. So your privilege and your status, a lot of, of elders in society are kind of put in homes and forgotten about. They're not really included. Um, you've lost finances, um, you've lost your physical ability, so you can't actually get up and go somewhere, um, as well as, and this is really key, you've lost connection. 
So the time that you're of that age, um, you probably are widowed. Um, you've probably moved away or have lost friends. Unfortunately, a lot of our elders in our society aren't in regular contact with their families. And so you have um, a bunch of people who have lived these amazing lives who are then kind of forgotten about. And we know from research um, that's very well proven. If you're going to make somebody depressed, the easiest way to do that is to isolate them um, socially and emotionally. And so we looked at all those reasons of, of why this age group would be suffering. And we, well, we don't have a bunch of money. We can just throw at it and make everybody rich. We can't, you know, run an old person boot camp. I'm not sure how effective that would be. Um, and we can't suddenly change overnight their status and inclusion in society. We might be able to affect it. But the one thing we probably could tackle is that connection. So how would we create more connections for old people? And there was this light bulb moment of, well, there's a bunch of young people that are probably also lonely and want to hang out with somebody. They probably would love to talk to an old person, but just need the help and understanding of how do you actually do that. And I think, and this is kind of really relevant to DSR, how do you rebrand volunteering with an old person? And uh, so the, the campaign was was born. It we, we called a hashtag old mates. And the idea was not to talk about volunteering and not to talk about there's a big difference between you and a person in their 80s, but that it's just about you finding your old mate. Um, that was launched in, was it 2017, Lee? I think. Mm, 18, I think, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah it's, it's like, uh, I don't know what year it is now. Um, and the, the idea was just to see if we could get a bunch of young people to sign up and uh, to a pledge that would say one hour a month for 12 months, I will commit to spending time with an old mate uh, in my life. And to help with that, here's a bunch of activities that we recommend. And those activities ranged from uh, old mate cooking, uh, like you get a recipe together and you cook something, which is really nice because a lot of old men of that age group actually don't know a lot about cooking. Um, you might uh, have an old mate coffee date, um, old mate discography where you would, could compare, say, music of their generation, so, you know, your Frank Sinatra to your music of this generation, like your Nicki Minaj. It's quite <laughs> a combination. Um, and just prompt that connection. Um, what we were really pleased to find was that the reception was extremely warm. People signed up and have continued, some of them, to actually keep that relationship going well beyond the 12 months that they originally pledged to. From... Uh below the surface in terms of uh, that behavior change piece that sits un underneath that. Um, I think, well, that was a really great uh, description of it. Um, I might expand on some of the stuff that went on behind the scenes to come to those sorts of decisions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, first of all, I should probably say too, just in case there's anyone from the ABS listening, uh, in regards to the statistics uh, around uh, suicide, it's uh, men age 80 plus suicide more than any other age group in terms of um, just real numbers. Often the number that we hear in media is men age 14 to 44 uh, is the leading cause of death. Um, but just in terms of actual raw numbers of, of deaths, men age 80 plus um, suicide far more than, than any other age group. Um, and so when it came to looking at uh, old mate, 
uh, and, and why we decided to go down this route of um, volunteering and pairing young people with old people. There were a, a few reasons behind that. One is that when we first started doing research, um, often people of that generation don't necessarily want to talk about mental well-being. They're of a generation where even terms like mental well-being aren't even necessarily um, understood very well. So to go out there with a, a, a campaign to a bunch of people for whom that language doesn't work, and if they're already isolated, then how are they going to affect their own situation? Which is why we turned our attention to younger people. They have the mobility and the ability to be able to spend time with older people. And also, too, if just from an engagement point of view, if you're an old mate who's part of the program, if it's done right, you'll never even know all you see is someone, you know, turning up, um, you know, if it's, if it's a, a friend or a neighbor turning up on your doorstep, being like, hey, let's hang out, let's spend some time together. And so that kind of, uh, I hate using this term in the mental health space, but that kind of stigma um, associated with being a charity case, um, you know, really gets minimized. Also, too, we know from stats that one in three Australians in general experience loneliness and social isolation on a regular basis. So even though Old Mate is aimed at older men, it's also somewhat aimed, at least in, in the subtext, around how do we improve social isolation of young people um, as well. Um, but when we then went to uh, market and started testing this idea with younger people, one of the things that we found uh, most commonly, people say, yeah, I'd, I'd be more than happy to spend more time with either an old person, I, an older person I know, or, you know, uh, volunteer at an aged care facility, et cetera. But what do I do once I turn up? And so that was uh, the reasoning behind the activities that Will was speaking to. And each of the activities are really designed to address a specific contributing factor of social isolation uh, or poor mental health. So it might be men of that generation, a lot of them who have lost their wives, it was the female who would do a lot of the domestic chores or cooking. Uh, and so that ability of, hey, as an activity, you can teach your old mate a recipe this month. Not only is it just a great way to hang out and reduce social isolation, but it's also building in skilling and some of those other contributing factors too. Yeah, that's cool. And then how did you, um, I guess, how did you launch it and how has it, it evolved or grown from there? Um, yeah, we, um, as it's through our not-for-profit arm, a lot of what we do through Spur.org is um, pretty organic. Um, so, and I think it's something that we've always done quite well. We've never had huge budgets for marketing. And so we've relied a lot on word of mouth and kind of quote unquote, the sexiness of the campaigns um, itself. So we've had people sign up um, all over the country over the last few years and indeed um, internationally as well. Um, we've also had a lot of business partnerships as well, um, whether that's with organisations like Grill supporting the initiative um, or through licensing um, as well. We've worked a lot with Anglicare Southern Queensland a lot over the last two years. Um, when they uh, licensed uh, Old Mate, they've seen an increase in volunteers of over 4,000% wow. since they launched the campaign. Um, so it continues to grow. We're doing work with Ipsos um, at the moment, which is a market research company um, looking at um, how COVID is affecting um, older Australians. So the old mate continues to do a lot um, behind the scenes. And I think um, long-term, Will, feel free to um, add to this. I think um, old mate is slowly pivoting from a hub of volunteering to hopefully being a real, um, you know, the real central point around tackling social isolation for the elderly uh, in Australia. That's so cool. I really, yeah. Um, I mean, it's yeah. I really like it. It's it's kind of just funny that a lot of the work 
that we see, I guess the work that we do, that we, we enjoy so much in, in changing behavior or others, it's actually not that uh, complicated. Like, you know, you, you're just trying to figure out what is a, a, an engaging and exciting way to talk about something. You know, if we'd gone to that and just said, um, hey, help us make old people less sad, uh, it would have crashed and burnt. And so, it, you know, it, it has been so successful, but it's actually really quite simple. Mm. Just like make it an easy way to connect with people. Yeah. Mm. And even the language is quite specific too. Um, you know, we, if you jump on the website, the pledge is um, I agree to spend at least an hour a month with an older person in my life. And often people will say, oh, well, that's really low. You know, why don't you set that at four hours or six hours or 10 hours or whatever it is? And again, this is playing into the idea of, of uh, you know, the way our brains work. Uh, for, and I think I often use myself as a litmus test. If someone says, hey, sign up to do something for four or six hours a month, my initial reaction is, ah, okay, yeah, but I'm trying to run a business and I've got all this stuff on. And it seems like a lot. Whereas if you say to people, hey, one hour a month, um, it mentally sets that bar really low. And we know on average, um, most people spend probably closer to between three and four hours per month with an older person in their life. Um, but um, yeah, that one hour that we at least state publicly is really intentional. Yeah, that's cool. I saw something, um, I think ABC had a program uh, earlier this year or last year where they put a either a daycare or like a kid, a kindergarten um, and they paired them up with a, an aged care facility. And it was amazing. They filmed it. It was a documentary and they put these young kids, um, sort of preschool kids with, um, with you know, the, these retirees. And it was just amazing seeing uh, just the difference it made to be around or to have that connection, just be, to have some, um, yeah, like to, to not feel so isolated. They had one young old guy who was, you know, he was pretty immobile and then, you know, very cranky. And then you just see him at the end and he's doing lawn bowls <laughs> and he's got the biggest smile on his face and he's, he's laughing and he's been competitive. And it was just down to the fact that he had that, you know, had that relationship or that connection. It was, it was amazing. It was such a cool show. And I've, I've also seen in, um, I think in, uh, in, sorry, in the Netherlands, they've, uh, you guys may know more about this, but they've started to put universities closer to uh, aged care facilities. So you actually put in older people with younger people and ha- trying to engage or like trying to stimulate more social engagements that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like a program where as a uni student, you get pre-board um, at, a, at a facility where you share kind of a dorm with, with uh, elders and all it's required of you is to kind of help out with some chores and just spend time with them, which is a brilliant solution, right? Cause you've got a, a cohort that are going through one of the most stressful periods of their lives and mental health in, in university students is, is incredibly poor. You've got a bunch of people who have a bunch of life advice they could give you uh, who have otherwise nobody to talk to. Yeah. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Mm. It, it's, it's such a great, exciting program. It's typically Dutch mm. innovation. Mm. Yeah. yeah, And if uh, people do want to look into either of those more, I could be wrong, but I believe the, um, the, the Dutch or the um, program in the Netherlands is Humanitas is the organization. And in the US, um, the Intergenerational Learning Center. And I believe they're based in Seattle. Oh, awesome. Thanks for that. So guys, on the COVID situation, I guess, what do you guys see as potentially the biggest effect mental health wise, perhaps in the elderly community there? Yeah, well, that's uh, one we're looking into in quite a lot of depth at the moment, not only through our old mate program, but we're also doing a, a piece of work with um, an aged care provider, uh, an aged services provider, I should say, sorry, uh, in Queensland. And um, I think the coupled with the, the 
research that Ipsos is doing as well. I think we're seeing really consistently that most people are faring worse from a social isolation um, and loneliness perspective, and that's um, both young people and older people. And I think what we're really seeing is that those who were already struggling uh, in terms of social isolation pre-COVID, um, that that has, you know, it's like an earthquake. It's not just that they're doing worse, but they're doing significantly worse um, in that space. Um, and I think, you know, there, I think a lot of organisations are trying to be really innovative, particularly from a technological um, standpoint. And I think in some ways um, there are case studies on either side, really. There are some people who say, well, it's been great being able to connect with people digitally and in for some people they've actually been able to connect more during covid because not only uh, are they using technology but also there seems to be just a psyche that people are checking in with each other more uh, at the moment because everyone's kind of uh, i think experiencing that sense of isolation yeah but then for other people that divide and that that gap of not being able to talk to people has just grown um we know that um access to um, technology and, and digital literacy, there's a huge gap at that older end of the Australian bracket. And so there are large swathes of people who are unfortunately just uh, being even more isolated than ever before. It's even just important for us all to acknowledge, like we're going through a, a once in a hundred year event where so many things we've taken for granted have changed. Um, the rules of, of social interactions have changed We've literally had to add a necessity to withdraw from other people, um, whether that's through lockdown or, or social distancing. You know, we're experiencing something that my granddad was, was 97 when he passed away last year. Um, he would never have had any experience with something like this. And so all of us are going through a experience that is universally anxious. Um, it is universally uncertain. And that is by pure definition of it going to create mental health problems, isolation um, and feelings of, of increased loneliness and just general fear, particularly for those that, you know, I'm talking about um, elders who are at most risk of it. And yet the, the kind of the irony of it is we can't even go and see them um, most often. So um, what I'm saying is it's all shit um, yeah. <laughs> at that moment. Yeah. And, you know, we, we all have to kind of come together, support each other and not forget the basic human things of connection, support and kindness that will hopefully um, help us to, to get through this in one relative piece. And on, and on that, I mean, you, you raised the point, Lee, that um, you, know, you feel that people may be, because we are going through this sort of collectively, we may be more proactive in reaching out. Um, definitely younger people, I, I feel, and like, you know, amongst my friendship groups, we're probably more active on, on that sort of thing than we were before COVID. Um, but, but it doesn't help for, for older Australians or older people who maybe where techno technology is a massive barrier. So they're not, they're, you know, they're not going to jump on WhatsApp or they're not going to jump on, you know, Zoom calls uh, because they just don't understand the technology. So what, what can be done there? Yeah, I think a few things, you know, A, this piece of work that we're working on uh, with the aged service provider is to, is to build a platform to specifically address that uh, very unique challenge. Uh, and as a, as a sidebar, it's been a really fascinating experience for me because what we've been doing over the last few months is really doing a deep dive into if you do have accessibility issues or if you're non-technological, what is the process of even just getting on some of these uh, video 
call services. And something like Zoom, which you know, we're using at the moment, the number of steps to even register an account, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like 28 steps across three apps and you need to have an email address and all this sort of stuff. That it's a huge, huge barrier uh, of, of entry for so many people. Um, I've completely forgotten what the original question no, was. No, I was, 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 was going to say, how, like, how? Yeah, I guess how do you bridge the divide or bridge the gap for people who aren't technology uh, technologically savvy? But on that, with, with with Zoom, I was going to say, like, I can't even fucking work out how to unmute myself sometimes. So, and I'm pretty good with technology, so, <laughs> so I don't know how. Um, yeah, how people with with very limited technological capability are going to uh, navigate these apps. I think landlines have been a real saving grace for a lot of people. Um, having spoken uh, to a whole lot of um, clients of this uh, client that we're working with, um, it's interesting talking to volunteers of that organisation who these volunteers might traditionally be drivers or they might have, you know, very specific roles that have no real kind of pastoral, uh, you know, overt pastoral care or any, um, uh, there's nothing there for them to necessarily be reaching out to people. But because of COVID and because they have built friendships with uh, people, they are making a lot more phone calls off their own bat. Um, what we're hearing from the volunteers is that the, the clients and also the volunteers themselves um, do acknowledge that the phone is uh, a poor substitute for face-to-face contact. It's not the same mm. as being able to A, B, uh, in person with someone, but even just being able to see them over something like Zoom, the phone isn't as good as that. But when it's the only technology that you potentially either have in the house or that you're able to navigate, um, the phone is a massive lifeline for a whole bunch of people. And going back to the point before around you know, that people are potentially reaching out to um people, whether that's friends, family, isolated, um, older Australians, that I think at least the combination of phone and that increased awareness of needing to reach out and connect with other people um, is a stopgap for the time being, you know, and hopefully COVID is something that isn't going to uh, be around for um, too much longer. I say that in in lockdown. Um, But, you know, I think a lot of people realise that this is hopefully at least somewhat temporary. And I think, you know, that idea of resilience is sometimes you know that um, resilience isn't necessarily about how well you do in the moment, but sometimes about how you recharge. And so I think there is a little bit of an understanding that at the moment, yeah, we're all being depleted and that's probably going to continue. For some people, they might be able to recharge in the current environment, but for a lot of us, we're going to have to wait until things calm down a little bit and then really take that big, big deep breath in. Mm. And guys, what, what are some of the biggest challenges that you both face in the work that you do? Um, not enough time. <laughs> um, uh, probably, I, th- I think we, well, you know, to be honest, I think a lot of the projects that we do, uh, and Lee, I'm thinking of, I mean, for me, I think um, some of the interviews with, with elders have been kind of emotionally devastating um, asking questions about, you know, had their family contacted them or um, how much contact they get. And you kind of think, you know, why, why do we forget about these people who are, have been so important and are so important? Mm. And then there are other projects, you know, talking about um, suicide for a lot of our work is, is confronting, um, despite, you know, doing it for 10 years. There was a, a project we did around trying to um, rebrand foster care and what that means to the public that was even really um, 
uh, quite emotional. And so I think I think one challenge is that when you do sign up as a business to say, okay, all we're going to do, like our, our niche is socially impactful projects, you are signing up to it, dividing a lot of that into your heart. And you know, it'd be nice some days to let's just rebrand like whiteboard pens or something. Um, <laughs> it'd be like a lot of like emotionally less investing. Yeah. On the flip side, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be doing anything else. And so I guess that that's positive, but sometimes, yeah, it can be, um, it can be a lot to, to have in your head all the time. Mm. Mm. I think that's a really good point because I know that we've spoken a lot uh, over this chat about the mental health space. Um, but yeah, we do work right across the social impact space. And so, you know, we have uh, all these projects focused on LGBTIQ plus rights around the world. And, you know, similar to, to Will's point, it can be really heavy. It can, uh, you know, really get you down at times. So I guess that is, a, is an emotional challenge of the sort of work that we do. In terms of more kind of day-to-day bugbear type things, I think for me, um, there's often an assumption that you can build something and then worry about the impact and the metrics later. Let's build it and then retrofit some mm. impact metrics. Mm. And that's often, um, I'll just say, like, I think it's a recipe for disaster. I don't think I've ever seen a really successful project that is first designed, then with impact considered secondary, that has great social impact. I think um, if you want to create social impact, you know, whether that's small or big, you need to be really aware of what that impact is from the start and make sure that whatever it is that you build um, is able to understand that. And, you know, I'll I'll throw it back to um, Old Mate for a moment. When we built Old Mate, there's a question in Old Mate around how do we reduce suicide of older Australians? Will we ever know that Old Mate directly resulted in uh, declining suicides? No, we'll never be able to know that. But we do know from the research that one of the major contributing factors is social isolation. And because of the pledge, the way that we're able to track volunteers, we can tell you exactly how many hours are spent each year reducing social isolation in Australia. And so, you know, that's our way that we can say this is the the outcomes that we're affecting in Australia. And we can only do that because that was baked in from the very start. And so I think, um, yeah, when we work with um, clients or just, you know, chat to people generally in this space, one of my kind of bugbears is people going, oh, yeah, we've built this thing and, yeah, we'll think about uh, impact or outcomes later. Or when clients come to us and say, hey, we've built this thing, now can you help us work out the metrics? You sort of can, but it's probably not going to be as successful as if you did it the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, no, There's even a, a few point. like regular, well, I want to say it's a pattern yet, but what I've noticed just from the, um, the business side of things, so in a, in a commercial side and spur where we get a call or we get, you know, referred to somebody and they've had a, um, a marketing agency that's been in there and said, Hey, I've got this great idea of how you can increase this or do this for your social cause. And it hasn't worked. And then we have to kind of, as Lee said, retrofit or figure out how do you wind it back or how do you then, build something that will achieve the thing that you're doing, even though you've already invested this time money into a campaign or a brand or a platform. And so that is, that is particularly frustrating. So, uh, Will, you mentioned um, a project where you rebranded foster care. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that was actually a, um, one example where we, uh, it was a contact of mine I'd met um, a year or so earlier, uh, randomly, and we got along really well. And she taken up a role um, at a service provider and um, I got a call from her randomly. She's like, you might not remember me, but 
uh, following what, what you're doing at Spur and the one if you come in for a chat. And basically, uh, an agency has devised for them a campaign of how do you increase foster care applications. And they haven't really um, delivered on, on the promise. And so they just said, well, what would you guys do? How would you approach this? And our response was yeah, everything that, that Leah had articulated. Okay, well, what are you trying to achieve? Like, what is the metric? Because if your metric is awareness or it's likes or it's reach, you can do that and that's one path. But if your metric is the number of applications of, for foster carers or how many kids are able to be placed in one home rather than being constantly rehomed because that foster care wasn't, uh, care wasn't a good match. Well, that's a very different story. We need to figure out how to actually achieve that. And so then we um, approached it from very much a behavioral strategy um, piece of saying, well, what, before we even create a brand and before we even think about colors or imagery or where it's going to be, let's understand the people. And so we did a real big deep dive into Oh man, um, I think it was like 30 different journal articles and research papers and case studies, um, interviews with, um, foster care staff, with, um, previous foster care kids that have been documented and to try and figure out why is it that somebody says one day, you know what? I would like to open my home to a kid in need, which is a big emotional commitment. And why is it that? you know, the three of us probably would see an advertisement for foster caring and kind of ignore it or filter it out of our brains. Unfortunately, um, and, you know, bearing in mind the, the, um, this podcast in particular, what we found is a lot of the advertising that was out there, um, a lot of the brands for foster caring was extremely negative and it was sort of foisting the, the problem onto the viewer to say, this kid on a billboard looks sad because you're not a foster carer and you should do something about that, which, you know, time and time again, that negative positioning generally doesn't work. Um, so we, based on the research of, of who we're actually trying to target, what are the mechanisms that would make them say, yes, I would like to know more information about that, or I'd like to start to explore that idea. We began to craft a brand of what that would be. And it was all based around making it not a big deal. Um, and we positioned it that we didn't even say foster care to begin with. We just talked about helping kids to be themselves. And all you have to do is, is just be yourself. So a very much um, um, not in your face, very positive, very slow in building that relationship with somebody. So unlike anything that had been in the market before, um, and the result of that was a 40% increase in applications. So we were absolutely stoked. And what was the line that you guys uh, came up with? So we basically boiled it down to um, it needed to be positive. It needed to be calming. It needed to be seen like it was just the most simple thing in the world to be a foster carer. So we called the, the, the brand of the platform um, UBU, and the, the tagline was helping them be them. And so there was no mention of uh, foster caring. There was no mention of um, that it was going to be a big deal. It was going to you know, create so much um, guilt if you didn't do it. There was even um, a number of, of smiles worked into the landing page when we designed the UX for that. Um, it was all kind of throwing out the rule book of what other uh, providers had done for foster caring and, and starting from scratch with a positive intent. 
Mm. And a big part of that too was understanding what are the individual barriers for um, specific users. You know, there's a lot of information out there uh, globally around who is the archetype of a foster carer, which is um, a middle-aged um, heterosexual woman who's in a relationship, likely has kids of her own, probably a teacher or a nurse or in some sort of, you know, nurturing sort of role already. And that's really great. But also what we wanted to know was, well, who isn't a foster carer and why aren't they considering uh, becoming foster carers? What are the barriers and what are the ways in which UBU might be able to reduce some of those barriers? Um, you know, and an example um, is say the LGBTQ community. Um, a lot of uh, people are wanting to consider foster care um, we were working with an organisation, um, Anglicare Southern Queensland, who are extremely progressive, wonderful organisation to, um, to to work with. Yeah. Um, but when you say the word uh, Anglicare, and when we first started the project, was around the time of the marriage equality plebiscite and um, you know, there were certain messages coming out of other areas of the Anglican um, community that were maybe not quite so welcoming to uh, the LGBTIQ plus community. And so this was also one of the reasons why the UBU subbrand was uh, also utilised because if we are able to reduce those barriers for people who want to become foster carers but there are things standing in their way, that was also a really big part of, of our approach. Yeah, great. Yeah. And guys, another question now. I mean, we talked about some of the challenges, but I'd love to know from each of you, what's a moment over the last few years that's been a bit of a success story, either personally or, you know, for the business, and that's just been a reminder of, yeah, this is why we do what we do? I think at least for me, there are lots of little moments. Mm. I think, you know, getting that notification um, from Anglicare about the 4,000% increase in yeah. volunteers uh, for Old Mate is you know, just incredible to see. Um, I think probably at the moment, the project that we're working on with the age um, service provider around being able to actually design something that helps elderly people um, yeah. connect with friends and family more easily. I'm so excited about this project. I just want it done already just so it's you know out there in the market and people can use it. Um, and so I think for me, I probably used to have a lot more real huge penny drop moments like that, you know, that YouTube comment I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think because we do work across such a vast range of projects and you know, multiple projects at the time, um, I think for me, I have a lot more, you know, daily or weekly little moments of excitement and that realization that what we're doing is actually improving people's lives. And, you know, to Will's point before about, I don't know what else I would be doing. You know, I don't think there's many people who get in their professional lives to get the sort of, you know, satisfaction and that real understanding that, yeah, you know, you're making the, the, the sort of impact on the world that you want to have. Um, and I think that's really special. Yeah, that's cool. I don't think we think about it as much as we should. To be honest. <laughs> like, I, I, no. think we, I think we think about the, yeah, like the challenges. It's such an easier question to answer. Um, and that's human nature. Like you think about the negative things more often than you think about the positive things. Um, but I, I like you, Lee, I, I think it's not like there isn't like a thing, like awards are nice and that's wonderful and it fills up a shelf and that's great. Um, but it is, it's a human moment. So whether it's like talking to an elder we're interviewing for this, this, um, this platform and you can tell they're just freaking delighted that somebody is paying attention to them and that they're being seen and being heard. Yeah. There was one moment that I only thought of now, Dan, cause you asked, um, where a couple of years ago I was invited to attend Davos for the world economic forum annual meeting. And it was this like amazing, incredible event, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity. It met all these 
there was people and these big wigs and everything. And it was, it was great. But end of the week, I was speaking on a panel um, that was open to local um, schools. And it was co-curated by this, this high school. Um, it was tremendous, loved it, had a great time. And the kids were incredible. And then afterwards, you know, you get asked all these questions and everything and people come up and, and want to um, ask things. And then they all were left. And there was one like skinny kid hanging around in a big hoodie. Um, and he nervously came up to me and he said, oh, um, my name's Isaac. I'm 18. I'm from the UK. I've been following the work of Spur for years. And I love what you do. It's really inspired me. I just wanted to say hi. Wow. And that was the best moment of the entire week. That's so you know, cool. he, he was just this kid that maybe through what we'd done had pushed him towards thinking about how might I actually create social impact in my life. So it's stuff like that where, geez, it beats working in an office doing accounting and people's books. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that, guys. I feel like you have a negative backstory in your life, Will, about accounts. <laughs> It's funny yeah. that even Dan, you said zero before <laughs> and how great it is. And I freaking hate zero. Really? Like I use it and we have to use it. Yeah. There's just so many things, we, man, where I'm like, why can't it do this? We, always, we do a little bit of, you know, we do a lot of work in the professional services space and, and sometimes work with accountants. And I always make the joke of, of zero giving this false sense of confidence to business owners. Because totally, like, you yeah. get in there and you're like, oh yeah, I can do this. I can do this. I'm amazing. And then your accountant calls you and goes like, what the fuck have you done? <laughs> I have to just spend yeah, a, like, a day yeah. undoing all your bad work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you're probably going to get audited. <laughs> guys, I want to chat to you guys about your your personal life and what you guys may do as a bit of an escape because obviously the work you do is incredibly challenging. There's a reason that I mentioned Four Pillars Gin is one of my favorite brands. <laughs> <laughs> and there's been times where we have sent because you know Lee's in Melbourne, I'm in Brisbane. Uh, in the Brisbane office. And um, yeah, there've been times where we sent each other bottles of, of various beverages um, depending upon the week. But I think it's, it is one thing that um, both Lee and I, I'm speaking for you, Lee, um, but I think we are very um, focused workers. It's probably a good way of saying workaholics. And over the years, we've, I think we've gotten better at saying, oh, okay, actually we need to, take a step back or we need to, you know, have some time out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be uh, seeing the in-laws over the weekend and, and saying, oh, I'll be online. And Lee was even just telling me today, like take some downtime. So I think that's, it, it's hard sometimes because yeah, you're running a business. It's one thing. You've also got the social impact side. And so you feel sort of that pressure of, well, you know, if I'm not doing something to progress it, is it, am I um, making it worse? Mm. But I, I'd say that um, for me, I, do uh, CrossFit as sort of like I can hear eye rolls already. I do CrossFit. Um, do you, oh man, Dan, Mate, we'll, way to go. we'll talk offline because um, I don't want to. I don't want my podcast yeah, to yeah, yeah. CrossFit. <laughs> like three hours later. Yeah. Um, but for me, like that, that's a moment where you're like, and you would know it's so painful that you literally can't think about work. Yeah. Because you're just trying not to die. Completely. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, or even just um, like on the weekends. I grabbed my fiance. We went down to the river here in, in West End on the grass in the sunshine, read a book, phone off, and just um, was there. And so I think at least I'm trying to do more of that. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I'm writing a kid's book as my yeah, nice. at the moment. Plug it. Uh, which, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's nowhere near, near market yet. Um, but that's uh, I'm finding that's, well, 
I don't know, I go through phases where it's either massively cathartic and absolutely seems like downtime um, or it just feels like extra work depending on, on the day. Um, but, um, Dan, you and I were, were talking um, offline earlier because um, my mum is, is terminally ill and uh, my nephews and nieces are at that age where they're old enough to have seen, you know, Nana Kay go from, um, you know, being fine from being healthy, being able to run around in the backyard to, oh, Nana Kay will watch you from, um, you know, the, the, the veranda to, oh, no, Nana Kay is back in, in Cairns uh, to, you know, Nana Kay can't kind of get out of bed. And I've been thinking a lot about how it is that they will uh, potentially process uh, mum's passing. And I remember back when I was a kid, when I was 10, 9, nine or 10 years old, my granddad had a massive heart attack in front of me when he was babysitting us. And there wasn't a lot of talk about it. And I think, you know, as a kid, you, you mm. kind of, I guess, naturally gravitate towards like Disney movies and those sorts of things that, that talk about death. And I think as a kid, I always kind of hated Disney movies in that, you know, you as death in real life, you never get that Mufasa moment, you know, you don't get to see your, your granddad up in the clouds talking to you or, or those sorts of things. Um, anyway, this is a, a huge tangent, but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm writing a, a three-part kids book, which kind of explores grief and death um, mm. through the lens of kind of kids, but hopefully from that slightly more realistic um, point of view of how do you understand death when, you know, you're not going to have those Disney moments. Yeah. Wow. If any representatives of Penguin Books or similar prints are listening, <laughs> Lee can be reached via the contact details <laughs> on our website. Yeah. Have you got a launch date for it, Lee? No. Well, no. So there's three books. Um, the first one's finished and it's in beta reader feedback mode at the moment. Um, as I said, the main reason why I'm writing it is for my nephews and nieces. Um, that said, I will, you know, I'll shop it around and I'll go through the, the usual um, channels to see whether it might have a, a commercial life, um, but it's not necessarily the, uh, the, the focus of, of the book. And when you do get feedback on that, is it incredibly nerve wracking like compared to putting yourself oh out my there God. for like, it's, it's like take, take me through like the feeling of sharing maybe your, your writing in that way, as opposed to sharing work that you may do for a client or through Spur. It's, I'm just having flashback to my composing days, you know, where you hand it over to the client and then you just, you know, wait with bated breath. Um, all in all, you know, the feedback's been really lovely and the constructive feedback has really been, um, you know, supportive and, you know, very specific um, and not necessarily surprising the things that people maybe want to see tweaked a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we're about three weeks into the beta reader feedback mode now. So the first week was just anxiety central, um, but things have kind of calmed down now that it seems most people are really enjoying it. So uh, that's a good thing. That's <laughs> awesome. And do you go into like writing mode? Like do you, do you set up like a, a, an old typewriter <laughs> at your desk <laughs> and wear like a, a tweed jacket and smoke a pipe or something like that? Or do you get like super creative and go JK Rowling and try to get in a cafe and, and write? Well, you're in Melbourne, you can't do that right now. But um, yeah, nah. what do you have? Do you have like a setup for writing? I have a little ritual. So usually I start writing at about eight o'clock at night and all the lights are off in the house except for the one lamp next to the bed. I've got some Oliver Arnold's uh, or Luke Howard playing in the background. Uh, I've got a chai tea seated next to me, uh, windows and doors open so the place is freezing with a hoodie on and that's my happy place. That's cool. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> and uh, guys, so what do, you, what do you read or what do you listen to? I'm a big believer in... Uh, like actually, ironically, and it's so typical for Lee and I, where um, we always seem to like ping pong off each other. Like I once moved into Lee's apartment building after he'd moved in there, um, and he never like let me forget it. 
um, and yeah, seem to kind of like copy each other. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an author. That, that was my dream. And so like, I'm a huge, hugely into books and reading and, and writing. Um, but, uh, at the moment I'm reading why we're polarized by Ezra Klein, which I've been waiting for for ages. Um, so the founder of Vox and he's looking at how actually we came to this kind of divided political system where the two parties are, um, completely polarized and the followers are completely polarized. It's really fascinating. Um, but I, I think you know, reading as much, um, at least I found particularly work that we do, you never know where, uh, inspiration or insight will come from. So whether it's, there's a really great book, um, Bury the Chains about the abolition of slavery in uh, the 1800s in the UK, which um, was really the first social movement of its kind where they actually invented petitioning. They invented um, local community groups that would act, that would go around and try and convince people to sign up to this call. It's so very, very similar to climate change now, um, but you would never think to compare the two. Um, Factfulness by Hans Rosling is, is also another great one. Um, so yeah, I really, really, I'm, 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 I'm a book guy. Cool. Will and I are quite different though in that you always <laughs> seem to gra- gravitate more towards nonfiction. Uh, and I love nonfiction, but I think given the work that we do, reading nonfiction never really feels like downtime mm. to me. It just feels yeah. like more research and more work. Um, so at the moment I have four uh, books sitting on my, um, my bedside table. Um, one is Glimpses of Utopia by Jess Scully. Uh, one is Cult Status by Tim Duggan. Um, both excellently written and full disclaimer, um, they're, they're both mates of mine. Um, they're great. Again, as they're nonfiction, um, it's taken me probably a little bit longer to get through them just because it does feel like, at least for me, it feels like kind of my day job. Um, I'm also reading 14 by Shannon Malloy, which was about him growing up as a, um, a closeted teen in Yapoon, uh, which I'm just devouring. And then I also have a kid's book, uh, Moss Belly McPherson, as ongoing research into what's happening in the kid's book world space. That's cool. Thanks for sharing. Back on what you were saying there. Um, oh, can sorry. I also add, yeah. Dan, I, I'm also reading um, a hot new title called The Clockmaker by Lee Crockett. <laughs> <laughs> Five stars. Yeah, recommend. very good. Back there on... on You're high. <laughs> on, social, <laughs> on social movement, you, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned the climate change movement. I mean, is there something on that? Like, do, I mean, it's pretty hard to tackle this in, in, you know, at the end of an episode, but do you feel like... Like with a, with a social movement, you know, in general, what do you guys feel is like the best way to drive action? So to get people to like, so you mentioned before, so, you know, to maybe yeah. build on what you were talking about before with old mate, you were saying commit to one hour a month, that sort of thing. So make it sort of, you know, break it down, make it sort of easy to sort of agree to. But is there a, is there a model that you guys follow in terms of, you know, is it awareness, education? desire action or something like that is there something that you guys sort of try to walk the customer through or the audience through in terms of a model or i think it it really depends and you know you you picked up one that's really complicated which is uh climate change you know that's a it's a you know probably the the largest challenge humanity has ever faced and yet it is actually um really hard to talk about um, there's a, a psychologist, Daniel Kahneman, um, who I think you, you might know. Yeah, I've got his book on he, my shelf, um, right? I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> I've seen your Instagram, Dan. Yeah. I knew where I was going with that. Um, and he has this um, comment, which I'm, I'll paraphrase, but he said, you know, one, one great challenge in humanity is that when a problem is too far away, we generally don't think about it because the lot doesn't affect us yet. 
when it's right there in our faces, we panic and we freak out and we're not very effective. And so there is that middle ground of when it's, it's far away enough that it's not actually going to kill you yet, but it's, it's close enough. You can do something about it. And how do you get somebody to do something then? But I think for us, and, and Lee, you know, said it perfectly, one of our internal phrases of those who design for action, so those who design for awareness can't get people to take action. The trick is the action that you need is very dependent upon the topic you're talking about. So with climate change, if you want to get a bunch of individuals to help with climate change, what are you wanting them to do? Are you wanting them to drive less, to um, use uh, hard soap over soft soap, um, like, what is it? Or are you wanting them to, to lobby and campaign and to put pressure onto the large organizations? So there's a big theory of change question about what that action is. There is one thing um, which we do uh, reference quite a bit, which is the Spur 6. So over the years, we've kind of devised what, what works for us as a shorthand way of looking at any sort of campaign or, or project. Um, so there's six domains which is first you need to understand the impact that you're trying to have. Um, so how would you demonstrably know that what you're doing is working, um, whether you're getting that action to happen or you're seeing a decrease in fossil fuel consumption in the area? What, what is that? What is the metric? Um, and the second thing is to investigate people. So who's involved? What do they believe? Um, who is being affected by this? Who has the power in this situation? And the third thing then is, is you need to meet them and move them. So what are their paradigms now and what do they need to be? What are, their, what are they saying now and what would you like them to say in the future? How do you speak to them in a way that they understand, not talking down to them or in terminology that they don't align with? You know, soften the fuck up, for instance, was very intentionally worded that, not, hey, you're clinically depressed, you should talk to somebody. Mm. And then once you, you're there, you then embed action um, and, and very much that point of, you know, if, if we just said to you, climate change is a problem, you should do something about it. Like, well, yeah, I know that. What should I do? Yeah. Um, tell me what I should actually be doing here. So whatever that project, that campaign, or that platform needs to facilitate action. And one, one really um, great thing, courtesy of, of Lee's mum, I think it is, was um, what's easy to do is easier not to do. Mm. So how do you make that action the default? I want to do that over what I was already doing because now suddenly that's harder. Yeah. And then you leverage community um, because we are social beings. And so targeting one person is great, but if you can target people around them as well or make it almost weird that you're not part of this community and doing that thing, you know, if you see everybody else in your building are using the recycling bins and putting the recycling in there, you're much more likely to do that yourself. Mm. So how do you leverage that community around that person? Uh, and then finally, the language. And I think, Lee, you already touched on this, how important mm. language is, um, mm. that if you want to get people to think a certain thing, to believe a certain thing, even if they're not aware of it, words are incredibly important. Um, mm. You know, it was soften the fuck up, for instance, we talked about going through a tough time rather than depression or anything clinical. Mm. Old mates, you know, we don't talk about old people. They're your old mates. Just find mm. your old mates. You pledge, you're not volunteering. And so think about what are those words and what are the effects of that, both negative and positive. Mm. So that's kind of our, it's on really kind of 101 sort of crash of one framework we developed over time of if we're looking at anything we're doing, just checking the boxes, does it have this, does it have that, does it have that? And if mm. it does, we're probably onto something. That's cool. Mm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And that ties in that 
last point around, you know, as I was saying before, my hesitation around the, the use of the word stigma in the mental health space mm. and, you know, how often, you know, the term smash the stigma is, is used in the space. And it's, you know, you may as well go out there with a campaign saying, you know, don't think of the pink elephant campaign. Like all people are thinking about is the, the pink elephant. Mm. And yep. so, yeah, I, I'm a big believer in um, that language is just so powerful. And I think often it's, it's wielded without uh, enough thought for what is the impact uh, of on the people who are hearing those words. Um, the only other thing, I think Will covered it really, really well. I think as part of that meet yet move um, principle that he was talking about, I think often when we, we um, sit down and try and map out how are people engaged with this idea or movement or whatever it is that you're focusing on, often people will move through the process of resistance, apathy, awareness, engagement, advocacy and then evangelism mm. and people will be somewhere on that spectrum and I think often uh, and this isn't necessarily just the social impact space although I think it's very prominent in the social impact space but in general is often I think people think about like what is the message of the brand what is the, the language or what do we want people to understand and often having kind of that one message isn't just it just isn't going to cut it because if you're appealing if that message is appealing to people who are maybe already engaged then great you might move them to being an advocate Mm. but if they're uh, potentially just aware or if they're apathetic or if they're indeed Mm. resistant you're going to need very different language to move them on that journey and so having a really really clear idea of where particular people are on that curve um, is really important. And I think if you're able to think about things through that lens, you're able to far more effectively move people to action. Yeah, that's cool. It's funny you talk about language. I think at the moment I'm, uh, yeah, very critical of, um, of advertisers and marketers who just use the COVID wank, just the, you know, the, at a t- you know, they'll have an ad and they'll say, you know, we're connecting is never more important than a time like now or something like that, or, you know, in these uncertain times or, and that sort of thing. And, and now I'm just like, as soon as I hear it, or as soon as I read it, um, you know, someone signing off an email where we've never had a, you know, an emotional relationship, it's completely transactional with like, stay safe or something like that. It's like, come on, like, this is just such a, a cookie cutter approach. And I think, Hopefully people are getting better at, uh, at, well, not getting better, but I think people are becoming much more aware of brands and businesses being so tripe with their messaging. Yeah, I mean, how many emails did you get at COVID, like when it was erupting from like the one cafe you'd been to on a trip to Sydney and you had to check in on the Wi-Fi and they're like, here's our plan for COVID. Like, I don't don't care. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I think I mentioned in a earlier episode i got a i got a message from like linked which is the toll company up here so like when you drive through the tunnels and it's like here's (laughs) what we're doing through covid it's like mate like i hope you're just cutting your cutting your tolls and they weren't they were just yeah yeah but yeah i mean i think i think brands are i i really like that you say language and making sure that you're using the right language and and i mean it's incredibly important the work that you do because words can have such a dramatic effect on people and making sure and being very intentional and clear with what you say um, is extremely important. 
And it's why co-design and working with stakeholders really closely is really important. Um, and, you know, to, to jump back to the example of that project we're working on at the moment, um, looking at the digital platform for uh, older Australians to connect with each other, even really simple things like start video on a video chat, you know, for us who are on Zoom, you know, 24-7 at the moment, something like start Zoom is a really clear instruction. We know exactly what it means. But for non-digital natives, uh, video has a very different meaning and start video. That doesn't mean talk to the person that you're currently on a call with face-to-face. And so little things like that um, you know, have, can have a huge impact on the way that people experience your product. And so it's so critical and important to get a variety of voices into any project. Um, you know, Alyssa Holton, who I used to work with, she always had a saying of, if you want to change the conversation, you need to change the people in the conversation. And I think often, um, I think any organization anywhere is often guilty of this, is you design things with the people that you just already have in the room. And there's a really big question of who else should be in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Guys, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I've had um, an awesome time talking with you. In closing, who's someone in branding, marketing, or design that you guys know that we should speak to? I, um, this is guys at DSR, really, really up in colors. Hey, yeah, I awesome. like what they're doing. <laughs> um, no, I would, um, I'd shoot you to, to Perth. Um, there's a, a group there called Draw History. Um, Angel Chen, she's the, um, the, one of the founders there um, and chief of strategy. And I think um, what they do is, is, yeah, really, really cool stuff. Awesome. So what was the business name? Uh, Draw History. Oh, cool. Yeah. Thanks. That's awesome. Uh, and I think for me, um, do you know Zach Fitzwalter at all? No. Um, he, I've known him from many, many moons ago. We used to uh, actually sing in the Australian voices together. Um, but he did his uh, PhD in gamification. Uh, and so a lot of his work, he works largely on kind of app development and platform development nowadays. Um, but a lot of what he focuses on is around that kind of behavior change, but through the lens of um, kind of gaming and gamification of experiences. Uh, and so um, he's just an absolute wealth of information um, from that uh, perspective. So I'd, I'd definitely hit him up. Um, but it's funny, like when, when I think of branding, um, you know, DSR it was also first what popped into my head. And I'm going to butcher this, Dan, because I can't remember the brand, but it is, I think, is it the hair product one you guys worked on recently with the bright colors? It looks like a toucan. Oh, Brill, the, the coffee. Oh, no, no, the coffee. Brill. Oh, it's coffee. <laughs> coffee. Yeah. Um, Don't mix that up, mate. That's well, going to be messy. It's very... That's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, I didn't remember what the product was, which well, uh, I mean, I'll keep quiet. But the actual branding, though, I, I think is is one of my favorites this year. Yeah, it's pretty good. Adore Thank the, you. the branding and color scheme of that. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun if one. If you want to send us any samples, we'd Yeah, happily... we, we, we might be able to work that out. I, I really, I really, uh, I really should um, <laughs> for, for these kind plugs. <laughs> Um, guys, and, and just in closing, what's the, what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice that you guys have been given? You go, Lee. I'm going to have to go back to that one that you've already said, Will, um, which was, uh, my mom's of what's easy to do is easier not to do. That's great. Yeah, that's good. My, um, on the flip side, my dad, uh, who is, he's like a retired entrepreneur now. He's a nudist and just kooky dude um but he he once said to me at the time i was like yeah whatever but i, I it's so true he said there's never a good time for anything <laughs> that's great 
So you may as well do it now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, and guys, where can people learn more about you? We are spur.com. Very the, easy. The, the, the easiest. Hey, thanks so much for taking the time. It's been awesome chatting with you guys. And, uh, yeah, pleasure. to share it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening to this episode of DSR Branding Presents. To learn more about the guests or the things discussed, head to our website, dsrb.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoyed it, please let me know and spread the word by sharing it with a friend. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. I hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.